Amen. All right. We are going to look at Acts chapter 13 tonight. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Acts 13, 1 to 12. You can say that the book of Acts is a missionary book. It's all about spreading the gospel. In the first chapter of this book, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In that statement, our Lord gave a geographical outline how that witness should progress, how that witness should go forward. Beginning in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria and finally unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And here in chapter 13, we have the beginning of that last phase. The going unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It marks the beginning of the third phase of our Lord's Great Commission. It's a critical chapter here in, in chapter 13 in the flow of God's expanding of the gospel. This, this, this 13th chapter marks a turning point in the book of Acts. Um, Turn to chapter 11 real quick, uh, 11 verses 19 to 23, by way of introduction. 11.19 says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one, no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyrene, from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That, then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came, he had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue. With the Lord. So the salvation of, of the Gentiles at Antioch was the result of certain unnamed believers who fled the persecution that arose over Stephen. They did not restrict their witness to the Jews only. And as a result, this church would become the, the launching pad in Antioch. As we will see tonight, it would become a launching pad for the missionary outreach that would result in many Gentile churches. Our passage this evening describes the first missionary journey. It had been about 25 years since Pentecost. The church has flourished, the church has grown, the church has developed. But now it's time to move into the Gentile world. To begin to establish that final part of our Lord's commission to preach the gospel to every person. Something to note as we go forward in the book of Acts at this point. 
um, the main person has been Peter in the first 12 chapters. And the main place of worship has been Jerusalem. But now Saul of Tarsus, who will later be called Paul, will become the main person and the main place of worship will, will be in Antioch. It was a very effective base of operation planted in the pagan world. At first the gospel went out to Israel proper. Rural villages around Galilee. And down in Judea. Jesus did visit Jerusalem, but for the most part, uh, he was out in the country. And crowds would come to him. Now, the book of Acts concentrates on the gospel going to cities. To the population bases. And this is because there was a population change from a rural-based world to an urban-based world. People were moving from the rural to the cities. Which, as a result, made those cities larger. And larger cities that were on the trade routes were an advantage to live in. People could buy and sell and do their business there. So we will see the gospel going from city to city more instead of village to village. We've seen the gospel go to Jerusalem and Damascus where Saul of Tarsus went there to arrest Christians. The gospel went to the city of Samaria and Caesarea. And the gospel went out to Antioch. And this important church is the basic place that we find ourselves in tonight in Acts chapter 13. And we will see Paul and Barnabas take a missionary trip from Antioch to the island of Cyprus to Salamis and Pathos. If you guys have a map, you guys, you know, you buy these Bibles and there's all these maps in the back. I don't know if you use them, but if you have that, tonight might be a good time to kind of flip back to your map. Uh, and if you have one, it probably you'll see one labeled Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, it's a good time to utilize it. But let's read verses 1 through 12. Now the church that was at Antioch there. Now in the church that was at Antioch there. Were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas. Simeon who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Manain who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said. Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work for, to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island of Tupacmos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew named Bargesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the sorcerer, for so is his name translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O fool of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, 
Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice in verse 1, Luke mentions that the church was at Antioch. Antioch was a Roman capital of Syria. It was a gateway to the east. It was a large city that was multicultural. It was rich in trade. It also had a, a place where there was a lot. It was also a place where there was a lot of immorality. High living, their luxury there. They had chariot racing and sports games in Antioch that attracted gamblers into the city. And on the outskirts, it had the Temple of Daphne, a disgraceful center of prostitution and pagan worship. And it was right in the midst of all this that the Lord establishes His church, His called out ones from out of the world. That's the way our Lord works. Where the spiritual need is greatest, where the darkness abides, the Lord will be working. Establishing His church as a base against the forces of evil. Verse 1 also tells us that there were prophets and teachers. Prophets in the early church, the ministry of the prophet was, was not so much foretelling as it was forth-telling. The Old Testament prophet in the Old Testament spent much of their ministry in foretelling the future. The judgments of God and mainly foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament prophets were more forth-telling. They would speak forth God's word to the people. Though at times the prophets did announce things to come. They did foretell. You saw this in Acts chapter 11 when Agabus prophesied of the drought that would take place during the time of Claudius who was emperor of Rome. So there was foretelling but in the New Testament it was mainly foretelling speaking forth the word of God. Verse 1 also tells us that there were teachers. They would be, they would be there to help ground the, the converts in the doctrine of the faith. Ephesians 4 tells us that God has established in the church four different types of ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And the purpose of these men is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, to establish His church in the unity of the faith, to bring us into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to bring the church into a mature people that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. And that we might be conformed into the image of Jesus. This is the purpose of the gifted men of the church. And when you look at the existence of the church, we are His church and we exist for Him. 
But also the church is a place where we come to be built up in Christ. The church is a place where we come to grow in the Lord. To learn His ways and to mature in our Christian walk. And I say this because I think the church has many times been a bit off course in its real purpose. I've heard many times throughout my years that the primary purpose of the church is to evangelize the world. But the church exists for the purpose of God's people growing in the Lord. For being transformed in the renewing of our minds for the maturing of the things of the Lord. And yet, a spiritually healthy church is going to be an evangelistic church. But it's the result of a healthy church. And the goal is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, conforming into the image of Christ. Notice the prophets and teachers included five men. Now, it would have been easy for me to just skip over these guys. You know, hard to read names and go forward. But these, these men, they reflected a wide diversity of backgrounds. Barnabas was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. Acts 11.24 tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Simon, who was called Niger, was a Roman, that was a Roman name. His name means black. It's assumed that he was a black African. Some believe that Simeon, that uh, Simeon, um, that this guy, this Simeon was the Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus to Golgotha. A lot of scholars comment on that, but we don't know for sure. He was probably a Gentile. Excuse me. It's possible though. Lucius of Cyrene, his name was Greek. He was from west of Egypt in North Africa. He was probably a Gentile. And then there was Manain who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was a member of high society. He had grown up with Herod Antipas. And then there was Saul. A former Pharisee born in Tarsus, schooled in Jerusalem with his impressive education and rabbinical teaching. So you had a Jew, a black man, a Gentile, uh, and a guy with a notable stature and a rabbi. And you see how, how our Lord unites such a wide variety of people. And a healthy church is made up of a wide variety of people. Who are united in Jesus Christ. Just look around this room. Go ahead. Look, look around. <laughs> look at us. Look at, look at the diversity. All the variety of people in this room. We have different backgrounds represented. That have been united in Jesus Christ. The gospel does this. We here at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, we didn't plan to do this. It's the Lord's work. I have, I have, I know of churches around here that have been really bummed out because they, they come to that point where they realize we're just all one kind of people. And I know that for a fact, but the Lord has just done a great work here in all kinds of different cultures and backgrounds. And I'm amazed all the time on Sundays and 
every time we have a service and I'm standing outside and I just say, Lord, look at all these people you're bringing. Look at all the people we interact with, the fellowship, the family, you know, all the different backgrounds. And, and, and I mean, it, it is so wealthy. It is so full of, of, you can't, you know, put a price tag on it if you really, really consider it. But God has done this and he's put this together. And with the different backgrounds there in the book, in Acts 13, they were better able to minister to the different ethnic groups in Antioch. Notice what they were doing in verse 2. It says, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. They ministered to the Lord. That word ministered, it basically means to, to serve in a priestly manner, to serve in worship. What they were doing there in Antioch was ministering to the Lord. Many times we think of ministering as something that's just toward the people. But we don't consider what it means to minister to the Lord. It is ministering to Jesus Christ first and then to the people that we are called to serve. Many times in the church there are people who who they're in, in ministry and I see people just busy and doing all kinds of stuff. In ministry and leadership, involved in all kinds of activity, but I, I, I ask myself, and we need to ask ourselves: Are we first spending quality time ministering to the Lord? Is that happening? Are we in in devotion and worship unto Him? Do we do that as preparation to serve His people? Because it's easy to be busy; we can escape stuff too sometimes. That we, you know, we know we need to take care of. And just be busy and think we're spiritual. But do we buckle down and spend that devotion time with the Lord? So that we are more effective. You're minister, you minister to Him this evening in praise and worship. Showing your devotion to Him. But He calls us to spend personal quality time with Him. And I hope we take advantage of that. Of that awesome blessing that it is to just break off and carve out that time with the Lord. A good amount of time in communion and worship and devotion to Him. This is what ministering to the Lord is about. And those, those men in Antioch were doing this. Our responsibility is first to minister to Him. We have got to do... Have, We've got to have the work of God in our own hearts first happening if we are going to be effective in ministering to others. And the men there, they ministered to the Lord and it, everything else flowed from that. Notice that they were ministering to the Lord. It says there, and fasting. They were fasting. Remember when the Pharisees approached Jesus and they said, Why do your disciples, why do the disciples of John fast and make prayers and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And Jesus said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. And here they are. Now they're fasting after the bridegroom has been taken away. Fasting is basically giving up something that feeds the flesh and replacing it with something that feeds the spirit. 
Most of the time it's food, but it can be entertainment, the TV, and you replace it with something that feeds the Spirit. Prayer, seeking the Lord, meditating on His Word, on the things of the Lord. In a sense, you guys are fasting tonight. Because you can be at home watching TV, watching something dumb on TV or at the movies, feeding your flesh, but you're here feeding your spirit. You're giving up that something that, you know, could be feeding your flesh. Right now, the last few Sundays, I I was, you know, sometimes I go home on Sundays and then I have to be back here at five. The last couple of weeks, I'm driving back and there's no traffic. And I'm going... This is odd because there's always traffic on the 210. And then it hit me. You know why? Football season started. And I went, ah, everybody's around the, you know, the football games. There's all kinds of examples of fasting throughout the Bible. Our Lord Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights before his temptation. John the Baptist led his disciples to fast. Luke 2.37 tells us that Anna, a widow who was 84 years old, served God with fastings and prayers night and day at the temple. Fasting was many times done in times of distress. David fasted after hearing that Saul and Jonathan were dead. Nehemiah fasted and prayed when he learned that Jerusalem had remained in ruins since its destruction. You saw in Acts 10 when Cornelius was fasting at the time of his vision. Paul and Barnabas prayed with fasting at the appointment of the elders in the churches in Acts 14. And Paul even recommended that husbands and wives might abstain from physical intimacy to give themselves to fasting and prayer. So there's many examples of fasting in the scriptures. But it's something that you determine in your own heart what you want to fast. But it's basically a denying of of the feeding of our flesh in order to feed the spirit. When my wife Gloria was homeschooling our boys when they were young, when they were little, uh, they used to fast on Thursdays, on Thursdays mornings till lunch. And work on their prayer journals, praying for family members and for the salvation of our family that didn't know the Lord. And my boys learned how to deny themselves, which was hard as a kid, you know, and uh, they did that back then, and it's been pretty awesome. But when we fast, you guys, and when you do it, you have to take the time in the in the midst of it to spend with the Lord. You have to do that. It's not to be done because you want to lose weight. You know, I, I want to fit into this outfit this weekend, so I'm going to fast. That's not what it's done. That's not why it's done. You have to seek him. You have to worship him. Wait upon him. Now as they were ministering to the Lord in fasting, notice what the rest of verse 2 says. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the order is, is Barnabas first and then Saul. Is mentioned second. It's going to change in a few verses here. You will see a change in order where it will be Paul first and then Barnabas. But it said here the Holy Spirit said, How did the Holy Spirit speak? I believe 
that it was probably through one of the five who spoke for God, who were used by the Holy Spirit and called out Barnabas and Saul to the mission field. The Holy Spirit spoke through the gift of prophecy present. But the thing we should consider is that it was from their own church. It wasn't, it was from within. It wasn't some outsider coming in and saying, hey, thus saith the Lord and telling people what they should do. It was the Holy Spirit that spoke and directed them through those who had the gift of prophecy from within. The Holy Spirit does reveal directly to each and every one of us what the will of God is regarding our lives, but there are times when a significant and encouraging confirmation by the Holy Spirit comes to other faithful leaders and respected people in the church, saints that recognize and sense the same calling for for me, for instance. Uh, but it is confirmation. Okay? It is confirmation on what the Holy Spirit is already doing in that individual's life. And I am sure it was confirmation to both Barnabas and Saul. It wasn't a surprise when they told them this. I'm, 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 I believe it was confirmation. God had told Paul about his future ministry when he was saved. In Acts 9, 15 and 16, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Also, the ministry that God had called Barnabas and Saul to it was something that they were already doing. They were doing it together. They were just led to do it in another place. And not only that, but they obviously had, had been doing it well. And this is obvious by the growth and the ministry of the church. And God spoke to these men while they were, they were deep in church ministry. Acts 11, 25 and 26 tells us, <clears throat> Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So they were neck deep in ministry. They were there with the people. They were ministering in the Lord. The Holy Spirit called them to take it further. <coughs> in verse 3, they are sent by the church. It says, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. I just love this scene in my head. There's fasting. There's prayer. And then there's laying on hands on them, which, which is that sign of confirmation and, and identification. And I can just picture the rejoicing in heaven that took place as these guys are sent out to tell the world of Jesus that many people may come to know him. I like the way one writer described this scene. He said, His plan to reach the remote, remotest part of it is set in motion. And with great anticipation, the missionaries launch out to hand deliver the good news of Christ. Having been enthusiastically set to see by their fellow Christians, 
They unfurl their sails in the winds of God's spirit as Antioch fades in the distance. In verses 4 to 12, we have the missionary trip to Cyprus and John uh, Mark is joining the team there. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The church let Barnabas and Saul go, but it was the Holy Spirit that sent them out. It wasn't a missions board who looked over their qualifications and their application and determined, you know, if they were qualified to go. It was the Holy Spirit that led these missionaries. There's a difference. It's interesting because there's a difference in the meaning of the word sent in verse 3. In verse 4, the word sent in verse 3 that is used referring to the church sending Barnabas and Paul away, it's translated from a word that it simply means to release. They released them. They sent them. Uh, Vine, in his dictionary of biblical words, he gives a good description about the word when he says, the sending is not that of commissioning, but of letting go. Intimating that they, the church in Antioch, would have retained them. But they let them go. And then look at the word sent in verse 4. That is used referring to the Holy Spirit. It means to commission, to send forth. So they were released or let go by the church. Sent in that way. But the divine mission was commissioned by the Holy Spirit. Important to distinguish that, I think. Um, and it was definitely one of the keys to the accomplishments of the early church. It was directed by the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. Saul was full of the Holy Spirit. The leaders at Antioch were ministering to the Lord and fasting in the Spirit. And they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. I think we can conclude that this was a Spirit-filled church. A church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. A church that is going to affect the world. Is a church where people function in the Holy Spirit. They live in the Holy Spirit. They think with the Holy Spirit. They act in the energy of the Spirit. Because their hearts are given over to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's the key in any church that is going to impact the world. That's the key in any church that is going to move out and fulfill God's great commission. There's many of you guys that are going to go on the missions trip this weekend. You got to be make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we don't emphasize it. We used to mention that a lot more in the early days of the church, you know, in the 80s and stuff, you know, but we got to do that. I know it, I know I think the enemy has kind of brought that in to try and to stop us from being too weird. You know, because people do get weird and, and all that. But it's a, it's a legitimate thing that we need as the church of Jesus Christ is to make sure that we are built up in the Holy Spirit and functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second part of verse 4 says, They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. If you look in those maps I told you about, I don't know if yours shows it, but Antioch was not a port city. It was a little bit inland. 
So they had to travel down to Seleucia, which was right on, it was a port city, it was near the water. It was not too far to the west. So they board a ship and sailed for Cyprus. And Cyprus was a logical choice for their first destination because Barnabas was born there. So it was on their way also to other target cities. And he probably had connections there, contacts. His family was there. And whether they, they weren't saved, he could minister to them. And they'd be able to share the gospel with them. And verse 5 goes on to say, And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. Salamis was influential. It was a commercial city. And it was on the eastern side of Cyprus. And when they arrived there, Barnabas and Saul went to the Jewish synagogues where they would proclaim the word of God. And there's a good reason for that. First off, Paul was committed to the principle of preaching to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Romans uh, 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And also, Paul having been a Pharisee and a rabbi, he would be given the opportunity to share in the synagogues. It was a common courtesy to allow a visiting rabbi to expound the scriptures. And I don't think Paul would turn down that opportunity. So he would go to the synagogues first. That was his pattern. He believed the gospel goes first to the Jew and then the Gentiles. So he would always begin in the synagogues, share with the Jews, and if they didn't want nothing to do with him, he would share it with the Gentiles who seemed to be open to the message. And you, you'll see this pattern in the book of Acts. In fact, next week, if you go through the rest of chapter 13, in verses 45 to 47, you have an example of that. It says, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And the end of verse 5 tells us that they also had John as their assistant. That is John Mark, who you guys saw in chapter 12. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch from Jerusalem after they had delivered the gifts to the believers in Judea to help them through uh, with the coming famine, they brought back with them this young guy by the name of John Mark, Acts 12.25. John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, Colossians 1 tells us that. Excuse me, Colossians 4 tells us that. John Mark was a son of a Christian lady named Mary. He had, you saw that in Acts 12. She, was, she opened her house to the believers in Jerusalem as a meeting place. The night that Peter was rescued from prison by an angel, he went to her house where they were all the believers were gathered and uh, they were all there praying for his deliverance. Verse 5 tells us that John Mark was an assistant. It means he was an under rower. It means to row. He was a servant. John Mark probably served in a number of different ways to help uh, Paul and Barnabas to give them 
more time to minister the word to others. And you're going to see next week that John Mark departs from them. And he returns to Jerusalem. And that decision of John Mark, his departure leads to a strong disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. And as a result, they end up dividing into two missionary teams. And you're going to see that in Acts 15. And even though John Mark started out as an under oarsman in service, he did make quite a mark. Get it? <laughs> Get the pun? He did make quite a mark in the Lord's work. His major achievement is that he's the author of the Gospel of Mark. So from Salamis, they went through the island to a city of Paphos, which was on the southwestern end of the island. And uh, Paphos was known for the worship of Venus, the goddess of love. And her worship involved all kinds of bizarreties. In verses 6 to 11, we have opposition to the word. Look at verses 6 to 8. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew name, uh, whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man was called, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Verse 8, but Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So, in Paphos, they encounter this sorcerer. He's called a sorcerer. And the, uh, the word is magos, where we get the word magi from. And in the positive sense, a positive meaning, it has to do with someone who, has, who is an astronomer. In a negative sense, like in this verse, it refers to someone who was a cultic, a magician, a diviner. He was basically an evil guy. He was a satanic man. The middle of verse 6 tells us that he was a false prophet. Which meant that his message and the source of it, the source that it came from was not from God. And what he was doing, being a false prophet, uh, the Old Testament strongly forbid. And as a false prophet, there were grounds for the death penalty for this guy. According to Deuteronomy 18.20. But that did not stop him. And that's the way it is when a person's heart is rigid against God. Like this sorcerer's heart was. The scriptures didn't mean anything to him. And a person does not do wickedness because he or she does not understand the scriptures. A person does wickedness because self-will chooses evil instead of righteousness. A person chooses to drink alcohol instead of abstaining from it. If a person chooses to live immorally instead of morally. And many times people try to excuse their wickedness. Like homosexuality and alcoholism on the basis that it's not their fault. It's just the way they were born. Even many when they commit certain violent crimes. Oftentimes try to get out of it by pleading insanity. And the point is that people love to excuse their sin. And we see that so much in our society now. 
But when it comes down to it, they choose. They choose by an act of self-will to do what they did. Verse 6 tells us that he was a Jew named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of Joshua. The Greek equivalent is Jesus. And being a Jew, it shows us what length he had gone to. To become a sorcerer and a false prophet. Because this guy had been given Jewish spiritual privileges. Spiritual advantages. Romans 3.2 says, To them were committed the oracles of God. But spiritual advantages, great as they may be, they have to be used properly. If they are to benefit a person spiritually. A person can be raised in a good Christian home. And yet just throw it all away. A person can attend a good church and hear... Awesome teaching week after week and yet throw it all away. And it's tragic when a person has this great opportunity to walk with the Lord but doesn't because they choose to go the way of sin. Verse 7 tells us that he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul governed a province of Rome for the for a, a province for the Roman Senate. So Sergius Paulus governed Cyprus. Verse 7 tells us that Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. It means prudent. It refers to his mental capacities. According to Lenski, it means, he said it means he was sensible and speaks of the quality of understanding, ability to put his mind on an object and grasp it. But I find it interesting that if he was an intelligent man, how would he have a sorcerer as his counselor? Kind of interesting. But he could have been dissatisfied with the usual idolatry that was out there. And he fell for the deceptive deceiver there, who offered strange supernatural abilities mixed in with this weird philosophies. I mean, if you think about it, he, you know, said he was a Jew, so he had, he had, he probably knew a lot of background. But then people get this and they distort it, and they get into all these weird, weird things, and they start developing their own doctrine. Who knows? But many times, leaders would have fortune tellers or astrologers as their advisors. Today, we would call them psychics. Even in our time, there have been government officials who have used astrologers. Do you guys remember Gene Dixon? Anybody? <laughs> it was said that Richard Nixon followed Gene Dixon's predictions. And she gave Nancy Reagan advice. So Sergius Paulus called for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. That's pretty awesome. That's great. He sought to hear the word of God. He inquired. He desired to hear the word of God. So you probably had, you know, Barnabas and Paul, or Barnabas, yeah, Barnabas and Paul, who were making, a, they were making this impact out there in the area that Sergius Paulus ruled, and he wanted to hear for himself just what, what they were teaching. Verse 8 tells us that the sorcerer, the false prophet, had another name. He was called Elamus. 
That's the equivalent of sorcerer. That's why verse 8 also says in parentheses, for so his name is translated. The name sorcerer means wise man, but he was no wise man. He was a false wise man. The main means nothing, though, you guys. If it, there's no substance to back it up. We have to be more concerned about what we are than what we're called. So Satan's agent, Elamis, began to withstand them to try to turn the proconsul Sergius away from the faith. Elamis had a position of influence and he probably saw that uh, he was profiting and financially and that profit might be taken away. You probably realize that if Sergius Paulus accepted the Lord, that he was out of a job. So he probably, most likely, had selfish reasons. And he sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And whenever you set out to reach someone for Christ, a soul for Jesus Christ, you can be sure that Satan wants to prevent this from happening. He does not want the gospel to go out. He knows that, that, that God will use it to open people's eyes. Acts 26.18 To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me, Jesus said. We're in a spiritual battle. And we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Jesus taught that Satan is active in trying to snatch away the seed of the gospel. That God, that seed of the gospel, when it is sown, so that it does not take root in people's hearts. That's what Jesus said in the parable of the sower. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear when the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Satan is working today as he did then. We constantly see it, not only in our culture, but in other cultures around the world. Satan has work, is at work in many ways. He's always aggressively, actively antagonizing the ministry of Jesus Christ. It made me think of the Emmy uh, broadcast last night. You know, where this host, he comes out in the beginning and he says, the only white people who thank Jesus are Republicans and crackheads. I believe that was from Satan. I truly believe that. That's just the enemy trying to, on national TV, keep people from coming to know the Lord. And one way or another, he is working to shut down the efforts to build the kingdom of God. And we have to be aware of that fact, that he's active. And when anyone sets out to accomplish the work of God, he can be he expect to face opposition from the enemy. It happens all the time on the mission field. And Satan, the, 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 the interesting thing is that Satan uses religion to deceive people more than anything else. Religious systems become the enemy of many missions movements. It's not usually the atheists when you're out on the mission field that's trying to, to block the gospel. It's mostly from religious groups and cults. So Satan is all about deception and he uses religion and religious systems, whether it's in Ephesians where they shouted, great is the Diana of the Ephesians, or in Athens where they had 
God on every corner, a God on every corner, and Paul found the inscription to the unknown God, and he used that. And we got to remember that even in the midst of this attack and the spiritual warfare, God, the Word of God says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. Okay, we got to constantly come back to that. I got to come back to that when I get weary and I start seeing things that are going on in this, you know, against the church. We got to stand on that promise. God said the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. And here He uses Elamis, one of His sons. Verse uh, 10 will tell us, right, to try and keep Sergius Paulus from believing in Christ. Look at verse 9. Then Saul, who, is also, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So this is the first time that you see that he is called Paul. Okay? This is the first time he's called Paul. Up until this point, he's been called Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name for Saul. And this is the last time now as you go forward in the book of Acts that you're going to see him called Saul. God had called the, him to be the apostle of the Gentiles. So it seems that uh, he is now known by his Gentile name. Notice verse 9 tells us that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, I can't emphasize enough how we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Got to make sure that our ministry is not in the flesh. Got to make sure that when we confront somebody, we got to check our hearts and make sure that we're we're functioning in the not in the flesh, but in the the motives of the Holy Spirit. The end of verse nine says that he looked intently at him. In other words, he focused steadily. He gazed at him, straight at him. It's like Paul was able to look into the very soul of this guy and just size him up spiritually. And it wasn't a pretty picture. Paul had some very strong words of indictment against Elamis. Look at verse 10. Paul confronts him and says, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? The word deceit there, it's used of a, of a, to, of a snare to catch, a, to catch an animal. It's used to, to, as a bait to trick a fish. Oh, fool of all deceit. Elamis had a deliberate and conscious effort to deceive. The words fool and all, fool of all deceit and all fraud emphasize the great wickedness of this guy. There's a contrast here between Paul and Elamis. Both are to be said to be filled. But one is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elamis is filled with all fraud. The word fraud has the idea of loosening all ethical restraints. Elamis was posing as one who could point people to the way of salvation. But he was a false prophet. He was a deceiver. Notice Paul calls him, you son of the devil. Saul is connecting Elimus' spiritual relationship. You're like the devil yourself. You are just like the devil, is what he's basically saying. And Paul had the kind of discernment to know what family this guy was from. And by diverting people from the true righteousness that is found only in Jesus Christ, Elimus was also an enemy of all righteousness. The middle of verse 10 says, This guy did not like any righteousness. 
And there's many like that in our society today. Paul goes on to tell him at the end of verse 10, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? You're always trying to keep, to turn the Lord's truth into lies. You are changing the truth about the Lord so it becomes a lie. Satan uses deceit to weaken the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ. In our day and age, there's a lot of uh, spirituality. It's more popular than ever. But it's empty of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You bring that in, and they don't want it. It's a spirituality nowadays where a person can make up truth according to his own likes and dislikes. You hear a lot these days that it doesn't matter what your faith is in. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just as so long as you believe in something. And that road is leading a lot of people to hell. And Satan uses deceit every day in that way. When Paul finished rebuking the sorcerer, he then told him what his penalty was going to be for hindering Sergius Paulus from being saved. Look at verse 11. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Paul tells him the hand of the Lord is upon you. The punishment was from God. And second, Paul tells him, you shall be blind, not seeing the sun. Not seeing the sun emphasizes the greatness of the blindness. You're not going to see the light of day is what he's basically telling them. I wish I had that kind of power. I wish I could do that just once to somebody. Put the blinders on someone. On the freeway. No. <laughs> Notice Paul tells him, you, you shall not see the sun for a time. It's interesting because it wasn't permanent. There was a, a hint of grace in this punishment. It didn't last forever, but for a time. And was this to give Elamis an opportunity to hear Jesus, that he might have time to think of his awful sin of trying to turn men away from the faith? I mean, you see how gracious and merciful our God is to give us time to repent. And Paul must have thought of his own experience at his conversion on the road to Damascus as he was blind for a time. They both had to be led by someone else. I'm sure that experience, it caused Paul to reflect and just say, praise God. All that gratitude, man. The middle of verse 11 gives us the suddenness of the punishment. Immediately, a dark mist fell on him. He went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That's, that's kind of, it's humbling. If you picture that. I like the way Matthew Henry put it. He said, the sorcerer being an agent for the one who hath blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on their hearts, is now in fitting justice blinded himself. 
And there's also, it's just an irony in this whole thing is that the man who tried to keep the proconsul from the faith, he's the one who becomes an instrument that God uses to bring the proconsul to salvation. (laughs) You know, I love that. And in verse 12, we see the governor become a believer. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He believed. The governor of the island, the Roman, believed. Pretty awesome. What a catch for the kingdom. What an encouragement this can be for us to pray for the salvation of our elected officials. God can save them. And there are believers in the system there that are trying to be a witness. But the battle for the soul of the proconsul was won. The power of the Holy Spirit defeated the power of darkness. A miracle was performed in the form of a judgment. And it vindicated the truth and convinced the proconsul that Jesus Christ, who Paul preached, was truly the Son of God. The Spirit of God was definitely working in that place. And the punishment, the punishing miracle astonished the proconsul. And the undeniable power that was manifested, the proconsul connected that with the teaching of the word of God and that was preached. And as a result, it sealed it for him. And he came to know Jesus Christ. As I was working on this Bible study, I don't know why, but I flashed back to a time when I was a new believer. And uh, we were in Calvary Chapel, Alhambra back then and we had an open door to go to a high school to take a band and do a bible study at their lunchtime out in the mall there the quad you know where all everybody had lunch and stuff like that and that high school happened to be the one that i graduated from so i was stoked man i was excited i was a brand new believer and uh i wanted to go down there and share the gospel with whoever the lord would put in my path so I went down there, got my new King James Bible that I had just purchased, and I jammed down there, and I went onto the campus with my Bible in hand. And lo and behold, the first people I ran into were the campus security. They used to be called narcs back in that day. Okay? And I don't know if they remembered me or what. <laughs> But they threw me against the wall. And they got my Bible and started fanning to it. And they believed, they thought I had joints in there. Okay, they were looking for pot. Uh, and I'm like, no, man, I'm a Christian now. Man, Jesus loves you. And, you know, I don't care. I'm so excited. You know, I'm a brand new believer. And I share this because when I was thinking about this putting this study together, the Lord ministered to my heart and I had to ask myself, do I still have that excitement to share the gospel? Is it something we need to ask ourselves this evening? If there's an open door, are we willing to take it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 69, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. There will be adversaries, but are you willing to take it? Are you willing to step in that door? 
Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Do we step in those doors when the Lord opens them? Alexander Graham Bell once said, he said, When one door closes, another opens. But we often look so long and regretfully at the closed door that we do not see that the one that has opened for us. And I leave you with this. Are there any doors in front of your face at this time that you're still staring at? Ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit and take you through that door to share the gospel. Use this passage tonight as a springboard for that. And know, you guys, that it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, we think we got to get all prepped and, you know, it doesn't have, you know, if you're born again, you have a story. You have a testimony to tell. You know what God did in your life. And we got to realize that we all have a mission from God. And this is a good I think it's a good opportunity to evaluate what we're doing for the gospel. How do you fit into the plan of God to minister the gospel? Who are you ministering to for the gospel? Who do you need to step out? Sometimes it's scary because it's family members. You know? It's hard. But we we truly have to re- realize that if the Lord comes at any moment, these people are going to end up in hell. We forget about that. And we got to, you know, we're in our little church bubble, which I love, but we got to minister to people. Who are you influencing for the gospel? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for allowing us to be ministered to you from your word, Lord. And thank you for the things you've shown me, Lord. Help us. Help us, Lord, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to be used by you in these last days. Father, to be prayerful. Lord, to wait upon you and minister to you, Lord. To fast unto you, Lord. And Father, just continue to use us, Father. I pray for the missions team this weekend. That, Father, you would just fill them with gifts beyond their ability, Lord. And just pour your Spirit upon that region this Saturday, Lord. I pray for our, all the different avenues of outreach that are going on here at, in, in this church, Lord, for this Saturday, for marriage ministry, Lord, for, Father, the Simple Truths Conference, Lord, Father, for Hallelujah Night, that you would use all these avenues, Lord, to give us that, that unction, Father, to step out and see people, Lord, beyond the surface and to minister to them. And even our own families, Lord, that we would not neglect them. Father, our, our high schoolers, our children, Lord, our grandchildren, that we would not just take it for granted that we bring them to church, Lord, but that we would make them accountable and minister and, and, and give us the insight on how to reach them. Father, hit different angles, Lord, that we would be able to share with them, Lord, not turn them away, but share with them so that they'd be left with you. So, Lord, go before us now. You are so good, Lord. You are so good. We love you. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.